Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here at Austin Oaks, we want to be the movement that sees Austin saturated with the gospel by developing disciples so that the emerging generations will be captivated by Jesus Christ. Good morning, my name is Karen Andrews and hear the word of the Lord. Simon, Simon, and this is Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. When is faith at its best? It's the question we're going to wrestle with this morning. When is faith at its best? And when is faith at its worst? For as long as I can remember, I loved thunderstorms. I love the power of a storm. I love the beauty of a storm. I remember even in college taking a meteorology class just because I wanted to learn a little bit more about storms. They are absolutely majestic. They are beautiful to me. They portray the power and the glory of God in a very unique and different way. And yes, I'm very well aware that at the same time that storms can be beautiful and powerful, they can be absolutely devastating as well, taking lives and ruining homes. Some of my favorite things to do is watching a storm develop off in the horizon, slowly develop and come on into where you are. One of, and also like sitting outside, come on, who doesn't love this? Like sitting outside on your deck at night, if you have a deck or anywhere, and you just see lightning flashing off in the distance. Storms are amazing. I love storms in nature. I'm not a fan of the storms in life, to be honest. Maybe after they have passed, right? Like then I'd be like, okay, I can see some value in that. But surely not as they are brewing or developing on the horizon, as they are heading my way or even in the storm. I'm not a huge fan of them. Life has a way of feeling oftentimes like a hurricane, unpredictability. When you think about a hurricane, there are different layers of wind speeds and intensity and, and different layers and rain bands and wind surges and the storm surges. And like we know that a hurricane can be completely devastating. And even at the same time, we can be duped into letting our guard down if you enter into the eye of the storm where all of a sudden you can see a blue sky and everything is peaceful. And you're like, oh, we made it. This is good. But you fail to remember that the back wall of the eye is approaching. Have you been there? You ever feel that? 
maybe not as drastic as a hurricane, but what about the circumstances and the situations in your life that cause anxiety, that cause stress, that causes worry, the things in your life that start to rob the peace that you are pursuing or the peace that you thought that you had, the things that make you start to feel unsettled. Did you know that America is the most anxious nation on earth? Like there are numerous studies out there just to show how anxiety and anxiety disorders, not just like the clinical, but just like normal states of worry and anxiety has been growing year over year over year in America. In fact, like I would do, like I started to do some research on this and it was fascinating. There was some of these graphs. I just started to study some of the kids since 2007, 2017, and it's just been like blowing up. Anxiety is increasing in America. And some people might go, well, Brandon, that's great. That's an isolated case study of a small portion size of people, right? But then you start to go, okay, what are people oftentimes searching? So I looked at Google and like how many times people are searching for solutions or remedies for anxiety. And you look at this and you see the searches just shooting through the roof year over year. What's happening Is something not working? Is our operating systems of doing life failing us? Are they broken? Are they deficient? What about the last two years of your life? Just think for a moment. The last two years of your life, have you personally felt this type of storm? Have you felt anxiousness? maybe over cultural issues? Have you felt anxiousness or maybe you are feeling that sense of anxiety and worry right now as we're seeing inflation increase in our economy? What's this gonna do to my dollar? What's this gonna do to my retirement, et cetera, et cetera? What about your health? Do we feel stressed out or nervous or anxious over our health? But outside of those larger things, what about the things in our heart? What about any kind of anxiety or worry that we might have relationally? Longing to be married and not finding that spouse or that mate. Maybe you're worrying or stressed out over your own marriage that isn't what it used to be. Maybe it's your kids. Or maybe it's your own personal finances and you're too embarrassed to admit that the debt in your life has just shot through the roof the last couple of years. Or maybe it's the pressure and the demands on you at work due to the cultural issues that are happening around us. Have you been there? Rembrandt is one of my favorite artists. And um, I remember seeing this painting. It was depicted on one of the TV sitcoms. But this was like one of his paintings that he did, Christ on the Sea of Galilee in the storm. And it's a beautiful depiction of a gospel story when Jesus told the disciples to get in a boat, to go to the other side. And as they're in the boat, a storm rages. And in that boat, you see the disciples reacting in anxiousness and stress. They're trying to harness the wind and make sure that they do all that they can to not die. All the while in the boat, you see Jesus asleep, a picture of peace. And it's not this fake, like stoic, false religious type of peace. It's a true peace that he found in God. And you see this contrast that's in there in this picture. And it's absolutely beautiful. In fact, um, I wish it was there. But like on the bottom of the scene, towards the bottom of the boat, one of the disciples is actually on the edge, hurling. You just had to say that. Some of you are like, don't do that. Rembrandt, if you know anything about Rembrandt, he always had this knack 
and like slight obsession of including himself into all of his paintings. And you see this guy in there that just doesn't look like a normal disciple. And I got a zoomed in picture. You got this guy in blue. And this is Rembrandt. And I find this fascinating that instead of him like struggling and being stressed out and trying to control the circumstance and the situation of the storm, he's looking out at the audience almost as if to challenge you and to ask you, what are you going to do when the storms rise in your life? And you see this contrast between Jesus and the disciples, almost as if they are two different operating systems and how we navigate life and how we navigate places where we find peace and love and rest in our lives. When is faith at its best? And when is faith at its worst? The text that Karen read for us is a beautiful story it's a fascinating story, and it's a little bit of a shocking story. It's all in the, on the heels of this upper room discourse. It's the, the final meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he goes to the cross to die for the sins of all humanity. And last week we were looking at that as they were celebrating the Passover, and Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he's like, listen, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Like, this is going to be a new way of relating to God. It's no longer about works. It's no longer about you being good enough. It's going to be now all about grace. It's all about what I have done for you, and my blood will be poured out for you do this in remembrance of me. And this whole scene is just ripe and it's full of emotion and, and like just vulnerability and rawness of Jesus. Because on the horizon is a storm, a storm that's brewing right out there in the horizon. And Jesus, in the midst of this conversation, even says like, guys, listen, one of you, you have a one in 12 chance, <laughs> they're like trying to figure this out, like one of you is gonna deny me. And they start to go, is it me, is it him, is it him, and is it him? And then immediately after this comes one of the most pathetic conversations. After Jesus basically said, I'm going to die for you. They start to argue about who's going to be the greatest. I think I'm going to be better than you. He likes me more. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Only Peter, James, and John went up there. And I'm, they start to argue about that. And somewhere in this evening conversation, in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus teaching different things that are going to revolutionize how they relate with God. And even in fact that it's so significant for us today, it shapes how we are to have this relationship with Jesus. In John 13, he takes on the role of a servant, takes off his outer garment, and washes the feet of his disciples to show them the full extent of their love. And then he starts to talk about them, about how the significance of love is going to be important within the brotherhood, but also love in the sake of obedience, because when they obey him, they're going to love him, and the world's going to hate them. And he's like, listen, they're going to come after you. But then he says in John 14, but my peace I give you. I'm giving you my peace. You know that peace that I had that allowed me to sleep in the boat while you all were freaking out? That's the peace I'm going to give you. And I don't give you the way the world does. The world, right, we get this. The way the world offers peace and the way we think how we get peace is we have to go find something. We have to get something. If I got this relationship, if I got that promotion, if I got a different diagnosis at the doctor, if I got this, then I would have peace. 
And we know that illusion because the moment you get it, another storm comes, another desire comes, and Jesus says, that's not the way I give you peace. My peace is different. And in John 15, he says, listen, guys, I want you to understand this. I'm the vine. I'm the source. You're the branches. Abide in me. Attach yourself to me. Depend upon me. You can't produce fruit in this world. You can't have the peace of God apart from abiding in me. He's significantly changing the dynamic of how we are to relate with God. And then in John 16, verse 31 through 33, love this verse. He looks at his disciples before all of the stuff happens. He says, listen, guys, in this world, you're going to have trouble, tribulation. You're going to have storms, and it's going to rage. You're going to be in a hurricane. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised, but take heart. Peace. I have overcome the world. It's not on you. It's on me. It's a totally different operating system. Because all they know is how they acted in the boat. Storms come, we freak out. I got to try to get control. I got to try to stay in control. I got to try to do this, to do that and that, to mitigate these issues so I can have peace in this wreckage. Let me try to prove myself. But that's not what Jesus is saying. I remember a few years ago, humor me for a moment, when Steve Jobs and Apple computers came out with, in my opinion, one of the most brilliant and hilarious advertising campaigns ever. In fact, it was so significant that it still has shaped the culture of the computer industry today. And some of you might remember these commercials. So I got an image of this. Remember this? I'm a Mac and I'm a PC. And all they want to do, these like genius marketers within Apple wanted to go, okay, if you're a PC user, you're boring, you're nerdy, you're stiff, and you're dull. Right? Like they, they wanted to kind of create that sense. It's like an old clunky system. And there's other commercials that I would always say, like they're always breaking down and all this kind of stuff. And then you look at Mac and he's just like, man, you know, they're like the rebellious group, the different operating system. They're the trendy ones, the sleek ones, right? Very casual and all this kind of stuff. And the tagline that Steve Jobs would always say is like, we're just not making computers. We're changing the world. Right? And in this, the reality is there's truly, I mean, there's other operating systems. I get it. For those in the tech world, humor me. I'm a pastor. I'm allowed to extrapolate and make things up to make my point, okay? So, like, what we see here, dirty little secret, shh, okay? Like, truly, there are two main operating systems, PC and Mac. But we got to understand something. Biblically, it teaches us this fact in our lives. There's truly only two operating systems that we can live by in this life. One operating system the Bible calls the flesh. The other operating system that the Bible calls the spirit. And I want to quickly define these things for us so we understand this because they are truly two different operating systems. And when we look back at Rembrandt's picture, you see them at play. You see the disciples operating in the flesh, and they're freaking out. They're trying to get control of the circumstance, and they're even worried. And then they start to judge Jesus like, you don't care. But Jesus is operating in the spirit, and he's at peace. It's not that he doesn't care. He's entrusted himself to the Father in this moment. The operating system of the flesh 
in basic words, is like it's self-dependence, it's self-reliance, our efforts to strive to be able to control circumstances where we want to get control and maintain control. We want that illusion that we are in control of circumstances, right? You ever feel that when things start to hit? You're like, man, I just... And anxiety happens because we can't control the future. We're efforts where we strive to find peace. The grass is greener on the other side. And oftentimes we try to do these things apart from God. The flesh wants to strive to prove our worth, validate self in order to be loved, right? We trust in ourselves. We think higher of ourselves. Things in this world we think will add value and purpose to us apart from Jesus. And at the end of the day, the Bible is clear. The flesh counts for nothing. It is spiritually bankrupt. It is dead. It counts for nothing. The operating system of the flesh is loaded with a virus and broken codes that crash the system over and over and over. But the operating system of the flesh is one that is in dependence upon God, that releases control and submits and trusts in who God is and his character and what God will do. It's trusting in his goodness. It's trusting in his faithfulness and love and justice. And it's not an easy thing to do. But it's a fight to get there. It's where we allow Jesus to have influence in our life. The Bible paints a clear picture of the fruits that come as a result of these operating systems. In Galatians chapter 5, we see that there's fruits of the flesh. These are the byproducts of this operating system. And it's not honestly really pleasant at all. Paul would even say in verse 17 that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, they're, they're against each other. They, they aren't compatible. They're so distinct. They're so completely different. The works of the flesh in verse 19 are evident. Like that, that word's like so clear. Like it's, it's obvious what the, the fruits of the flesh are. So obvious. Sexual morality. Any kind of sexual sin at any level is not just the affair. It's any sexual sin at any level, even if it's a desire within the thought life, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. This isn't just like I'm going to a pagan temple and worshiping a pagan god. This is anything that has your heart. Sorcery, enmity. Look at the the issues between people. Strife, jealousy, Anybody ever feel jealous? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Anybody feel envious about other people when they have things or experiencing things that you don't have? Discontentment, right? Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit, I mean, they're not even close. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Which operating system do we operate by? Now back to the upper room. The disciples have no idea that the storm is brewing. They have no idea that a hurricane is about to make landfall. But Jesus knows. He knows exactly. And he looks Peter in the eye. And he says something that is so shocking. Simon. Simon. I feel like he has to do that. My version has that because he's, he's distracted because he's arguing because he's like, you know, a big deal. Simon, Satan has demanded you. Feel the intensity of that. Peter, 
Simon has demanded you, and the you is actually plural, disciples, and we can even extrapolate that further, the church, but he's speaking to Peter because he wants Peter to learn something, to come back and to disciple the church through. Satan has demanded you to sift you. Peter, I'm praying for you. And after you return, in other words, after you blow it, strengthen your brothers. Peter, (laughs) Jesus, I got this. Let let them try. Let them try. I got this. Like, yeah, these other guys here, yeah, they might fall. That's why I'm the greatest. That's why I'm arguing so hard. I'm not going to. Jesus, I will go to prison with you, and even if I have to, I will die. Peter, did you not hear me? I told you, Satan has demanded you, and by the fact that I said I'm praying for you, it should be telling you that I've given him permission. Like, think about that for a moment. Like, isn't that just slightly startling that Jesus would say, I've, I've essentially given him permission to throw you into the storm. I'm giving Satan permission to sift you. To, to, he's going to try to destroy you. He's going to try to ruin your faith. He's going to try to show you that you're a failure and that I don't love you. He's going to try to do all of that, Peter, and I'm going to allow him because I love you. How can you say you love me if you're going to allow that to happen? Because you have no idea the beauty of being sifted. You won't understand it now, but you will later. Oh, man, Peter has the right desire, doesn't he? Jesus, I got this. I mean, how many times do we do that? Like, we even come to church and we go, Jesus, look at my heart. I want this. I'm good. I want to pray. I want to serve you. I want to give. Like, we have the right desire. But, friends, we have to understand this. Right desire is not enough. To have the right desire is not enough to go toe-to-toe with Satan. Because the right desire, we usually go at that point, it's like, I got this. Proves that you're still operating in the flesh. And the flesh counts as nothing. The flesh is good as dead. And Jesus would say in this same scenario in Matthew 26, the flesh or the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. The spirit is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's to the desire. You have the right desire. You guys, you have the right desire. That's great. But it's going to mean nothing until you remember and understand that your flesh is weak. Our desire is not enough. And Jesus understands. Friends, like, we've got to understand, like, this is such love of Jesus, even though, like, our brain just, just doesn't compute that. Like, him allowing Satan to put me in the fire is love? That seems very unloving. But Jesus understands that apart from faith, we can't please God. And apart from faith, we can't even enjoy who God is and rejoice in his presence and receive the promises that he's given us. So he knows that the only way for us to no longer trust and operate in the system of the flesh is to allow us to be sifted, is to throw us into the fire. So I need to say something. And it might be slightly startling, but it shouldn't shock us too much. But remember, in this life, Jesus said in John 16, you're going to have trials, troubles, tribulations, storms, tests, fire. Take heart. I have overcome it. You don't have to. I have done it. Jesus is letting us know by means of this conversation, 
that Jesus and Satan both want us. Jesus and Satan both want us. They both want your heart for totally different reasons. John 10, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you. He wants to destroy you. He demands you to Jesus. Like, I want them. I want to destroy them. But Jesus came to give us life and knows that there's beauty and power in the sifting. One wants to destroy you. One wants to transform you. One wants to enslave you, and one wants to liberate you. One wants to keep you blind in the darkness, and the other one wants you to see the light. One wants you to remain in an anxious state, trying to control the circumstances. The other one wants you to have the peace of God that transcends all understanding. The purpose of sifting for Satan is to destroy your faith. You have an enemy, and he's out after you. The purpose of sifting for Jesus is to grow and strengthen your faith. But because he knows that apart from faith, we can't please God. So Peter, I've prayed for you. And I'm still praying for you. I would be honest. I read this this week, and this was my reaction. Um, thanks, Jesus. I mean, thanks for praying for me, but I'm good. I mean, but if it's true and what you say is true and Satan is coming after me, do you think that maybe we could, I could use something other than prayer? Maybe, like, could you send an angel instead? Like, like, what, like you ever, like, feel like in this moment, like, Jesus is like, I'm going to allow Satan to attack you and I'm praying for you. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I mean, I'm just saying, Jesus. Oh, I hate that phrase. My kids say that all the time. Just saying, Dad. Just saying. Jesus, I'm just saying, like, prayer? That's it? Really? Are you praying for me? Awesome. Anybody else find that slightly fascinating or slightly odd? I mean, like, I mean, come on, let's just be honest. Like, in our Christian culture nicety world, we oftentimes say that. Hey, I'm praying for you. And, and like some of us do, I'm not going to downplay that. Some of us are faithful prayers, but a lot of times we just say that to kind of let people know that we're thinking about them. Hey, I see you and I care about you. I'm praying for you. And it's almost like just a nice Christian gesture rather than actual power. When Jesus says he's praying for us, he understands something completely different than how we understand prayer right? Maybe we wouldn't have this reaction or response if we understood the operating system of the spirit that Jesus lived and functioned in. Maybe we wouldn't downplay the significance of prayer if we understood the power and the blessing of being in the presence of God. Maybe we would understand that in prayer is often where we receive the peace of God as we cast our anxieties upon him. Maybe we would understand that prayer is where we actually find the strength and the courage to stand firm for Jesus in this world where prayer is a refuge. Jesus isn't like us. He doesn't just simply say, hey, Peter, I'm praying for you. Good luck. And when I come back from the dead, I'll check in. Like, he's interceding for Peter that his faith doesn't fail, and he loves him so much that he says, listen, Peter, you're going to lose this round. 
Because after you return, Peter, you hear me? Like, I want you to come back, be restored, and strengthen your brothers. Think about Jesus' life and ministry for a moment. He operated on a completely different plane than we did because he lived and functioned by a totally different operating system known as the Spirit, right? Like, how was he able, like, think about this. How was Jesus able to sustain everything that he was able to sustain? How was Jesus able to deal with all of the tremendous burdens, the constant rejections, the political and religious powers opposing him, satanic warfare? How did Jesus handle disappointing the expectations of his followers and seeing them leave? He preached a sermon and saw 5,000 people walk away. How did Jesus do that? How was he able to still trust his father, still love his enemies, and still love these disciples who totally don't get it, and still keep moving forward towards the cross in joy? Was it because he understood the significance of prayer? The key to the operating system of the Spirit is prayer. Abiding, relating, all of Jesus' life. You just look at the Gospels from cover to cover. You will see it over and over and over. He withdrew to pray. He was up all night praying. He would get up early before the sun was to pray. Even when throngs of people are coming to him, he doesn't take an Instagram story and tweet it and hashtag it. No, he doesn't ride the momentum. He actually withdraws to pray. Prayer covered his life. His pattern of life always started and revolved around prayer. It was a significant function of the operating system of the Spirit. So let's ask the question. After this conversation that Peter just had with Jesus, hey, Satan's going to sift you. He's out there to destroy you. I'm praying for you. Peter's like, I got this. Jesus, no, you don't. The rooster's going to crow. You're actually going to deny me three times. They journey on to the garden. And here's the question. What did Peter do this night? to prepare himself for the storm that was coming. And what did Jesus do this night to prepare himself for the storm that's coming? Let's look at this, Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom. I love that little line. Luke is like, this is not, this is his custom, like to go out and to pray to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why did he say that? It's fascinating. In Matthew's version, he said the same thing. Watch and pray. Be spiritually alert, be spiritually discerning, be spiritually self-aware, pay attention to it, be sober-minded, realize that you can't do this by yourself, and that's why I'm asking you to watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Wow, that sounds eerily familiar to the Lord's Prayer. Hmm. Lead us not into temptation. Now, I got this, Jesus. I'm strong enough. Here's a freebie. What you flirt with, you will fall to. Did you know that Scripture's commands in battling temptation is to not sit in front of it and battle it? It's to run. 1 Corinthians 10. 
God provides a way out. Lead us not to temptation and deliver us from the evil one. In the garden, storms coming. Guys, watch and pray. You don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. Your desires are right. Your ambitions are right. But listen, your flesh is weak. That's why you need to pray. What does Peter do? He falls asleep with all of the warning, with all of the emotion, with all of the heart, all of Jesus' vulnerability. Just to watch and pray, they slept. And in this garden, at this time, with the storm of storms brewing on the horizon, Jesus did what Jesus always did. He prayed. The significance of this moment in the garden revolves around prayer, both for Peter and for Jesus. Jesus knew that the battle wasn't won in front of the high priest. Jesus knew that the battle wasn't won in front of Pontius Pilate. And in this garden, we have both operating systems on full display. Peter nodding off. I got this. I don't need to pray that much. He maybe even said, thank you, Lord, for today. Good day. Protect me. Protect this. I fell asleep right there. If you didn't catch that. Just wasn't funny. I get it. Peter is nodding off. Jesus fell on his knees. The difference couldn't be any clearer. Jesus was raw, vulnerable, authentic, and real with his father. He wasn't this stoic, religious painting Jesus that came in, no trouble. He's just all good. He's just, I'm just going to pray because that's what we do. He's agonizing with his father. Verse 44, look at this verse. Like, in being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly. He's like, I am going to sit here and I'm going to pray and I'm not going to pretend that something isn't bothering me, that I'm not worried about this. Father, if there's another way, God, Father, if there's any possible way to take this cup, God, please do it. He's agonizing. We don't even know all the words that were there, but he know, we know he was fighting and wrestling with himself in this moment to the point that he was sweating blood. He didn't sweat blood anywhere else agony and he kept praying and praying until he had a sense of resolve and peace and he got himself to that place he said not my will but your will be done and it, but don't mistake that took a process of wrestling he didn't just skip into the garden hey Jesus or father your will be done awesome guys let's go he fought and he wrestled and he agonized and he sweated blood until he received the peace that gave him the power to stand firm when all of it was coming. When the power of darkness and Satan came after him, that gave him the power in public. It was the prayer that was in private. That's where it all happened. That's the operating system of the Spirit. Powerful. And as a result of this garden moment, Jesus faced the storm with this calm confidence. But Peter, he faced the storm in cowardice anxiousness and fear. Peter was sifted. Luke twenty two fifty four. 54. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter, 
was following at a distance. Note this. You want to know a byproduct of operating by the flesh? You will only follow Jesus at a distance. You'll follow at a distance. Because you're still trying to control things. You're kind of like, you, but uh. you're one of them. You're the Galilean. You're with Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Rooster crows, Jesus and Peter lock eyes. Peter was sifted. Peter, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying that when you return, you're going to lose this, you're going to lose this round. But when you get up, strengthen your brothers. I'm praying that your faith may not fail. Did Peter's faith fail? Maybe in that moment, yes. But in a long journey, well, it all depends on how Peter responded to Jesus' invitation to be restored. In John 21, we see this picture. After the resurrection, Jesus and Peter have this dialogue around a fire with fish. And Jesus asked Peter three times. Each time, in reference to the public denial, he wants him to publicly confess this. Do you love me? Yeah, Lord, you, you know I, I love you. Feed my sheep. And Peter, do you, do you love me? And Peter now moved and troubled. You know I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter. Do you love me? You know I do. Jesus didn't ask Peter that because Jesus was insecure or he was unsure of Peter's position with him right now. He did it for Peter's sake. Peter, your desire is good. Your heart wants me. But you can't do it in the flesh. Do you love me? Yes. And do you think Peter learned a lesson? And did he take this lesson and strengthen his brothers? You bet he did. Read 1 Peter. Read Acts. Prayer was first and vital in Peter's life. Prayer in private led to courage publicly in Peter. But look at some of the things that Peter wrote in 1 Peter. I, I, I got to imagine when Peter wrote this, he was thinking back to this moment in the garden. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you rejoice. In what do you rejoice? Oh, though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, sifting, storms, fire, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You need to be tested because you've got to learn that the flesh is a broken system, but you've got to learn how to operate by the Spirit. 1 Peter 4, talking about the battle between flesh and the Spirit. In 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter even says, hey, hey, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for what? For the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Think honestly. 
Think in humility about yourself. Realize that you are weaker than you re- understand. Realize that the flesh counts for nothing. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If you jump all the way now to 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. One of the best ways to humble yourself? Prayer. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Don't think you got this. Don't think that somehow, apart from the Spirit, you can do this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be spiritually discerning. Be spiritually self-aware. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to sift the devourer. But you got to like, imagine Peter's thinking about this conversation with Jesus. Resist him. Firm in the flesh. Yeah, no. Firm in the faith. Dependence. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. And I love this. And after you have suffered a little while, Even if you might stumble and fall in those moments, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That reminds me of John 21. After Peter fell and denied Jesus, Jesus, the God of all grace, came to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And Peter shared his vulnerability with us, to strengthen us, to stir us on, to realize that when the storms come, and they will come, when the anxiety and the things come in our life, to surrender, to abide, to watch and pray, receive God's peace, and then share that, strengthen others. So when is faith at its best? I propose to you that faith is at its best when you're on your knees in the garden, abiding in Jesus, humbling yourself before the Lord. Instead of striving to get peace, to simply receive peace. To not pretend of the anxieties and worries in your life aren't problems. To somehow go, God, I got this. I don't want to trouble you. But to wrestle with God until that peace has come. When is faith at its worst? When you're sleeping spiritually in the garden. When our prayer life is anemic when we follow at a distance, when we have deceived ourselves into thinking that my desires and my intentions and my self-efforts are good enough. So let's take a moment as we conclude and turn our hearts toward God. Because I don't want us to forget the beauty of some of these things in this passage. There is so much beauty in knowing that Jesus is praying for you. Do you know that? That Jesus right now, we even see this in Hebrews chapter 10, he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. 
In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you with groans and things you don't even understand. Do you know how beautiful that is? Jesus knows the world we're in. He knows the battles. He knows the storm. And he's conquered it all. He's praying for you. He's fighting for you because he wants you. And Jesus is committed to you that even if you were to stumble and fall and lose a round in the battle, he himself, after a season of fiery trials and tribulations, he himself will restore you, confirm you, and strengthen you, and establish you. How gracious is our Lord. I give you my peace, but not as the world gives. Psalm 131. Verses one through two. Some of you right now, this is like, I need this passage. I need this psalm in my life. Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Sober-minded. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. It makes me think of the disciples arguing about the greatest. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. How? I've done this like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Some of you, that's where you want to be right now. I know it. Some of you are in storms and anxieties and things that are just pressing on you. And you're trying so hard and you're weary and you don't know what to do. And you feel like if Jesus doesn't wake up, I'm going to drown. I want to challenge you. Pray. Don't downplay it. Don't write it off. Pray in the garden. Wrestle. Agonize. Until you get God's peace. Receive the peace that Paul says, may the peace of Christ that transcends all understanding, the peace that can give you joy in the storms, the peace that gives you contentment no matter what happens in your life, the peace of Christ, may his peace guard your heart and your mind. And some of you who've been in a storm and have come out of a storm, you need to be like Peter. You, you need to share that story. You need to share God's faithfulness in your life because your brothers and sisters in the church are going to undergo fiery trials and they're going to need encouragement. Paul said that like in, in the sufferings of Christ, he was comforted so that when Paul was suffering, he shared in the comforts of Christ so that when you suffer, he can share then the comfort that he exposed from Jesus to you. Share your story. Share how prayer was significant. Share what God has done in it. Share what you've learned. And we need that as a community. And if you don't know Jesus and you don't know anything about this type of peace, I want you to understand something, that this life, the operating system of the Spirit, is only possible by professing faith in Jesus. It's what He has done for you on the cross. He's overcome the world. He's defeated the sin. He's defeated the darkness. He's defeated the enemy and death. The peace of God is only accessible through faith in Jesus. Transformation, the full and abundant life is only possible through faith in Jesus. And I want you to hear this. He wants you. He came for you. He came to save you. 
forgiven. He can do that right now. He came to free you, and he wants to free you right now. And we all know times of trials and testings will come, storms will come, sifting's going to happen, Satan's going to come to try to destroy you, but you need to understand this, church, Jesus will transform you through it. He will conform you more into the image, his image. He's doing it because he loves you. We want to spend some time in worship, but we also want to create some space. We want this moment to be a garden moment. Some of you need prayer. And I'm just going to throw this out there. Don't be too proud to come up and to pray with a brother and sister, to stir you up, to encourage you. If you don't feel the peace of God in your life, pray. Come pray with us. Let's wrestle together for God to, re- for, to give you the peace, to receive his peace. And if you need to profess faith in Jesus, we would love to walk alongside of you and pray with you. But in this moment, as we sing, you may just want to like reflect on his words. Or if you need prayer, please come on up. We will be here as long as we need to be here to do that. Meaning even after the service, you need extra prayer. We're not going to ruin this forever. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you pray for us. I thank you that you intercede for us. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that are in the middle of a storm or they see one coming on the horizon. There's a sense of worry, a sense of anxiety, a sense of need to control it. Or maybe they've just grown a little disillusioned with faith because they've been trying so hard and keep failing and things don't seem to change. Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would strengthen them. You would restore them. Lord, I want to pray for anybody in this room that needs the peace of God, the peace of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would allow them to receive that as a gift, not as something they have to earn. Lord, I do pray that you would heal us in this moment. Forgive us for the moments where we've tried so hard, where we thought we were stronger than we are, we thought we were better than we are. Forgive us for trying to grab control and not trust you. Lord, we have so much to learn. We thank you that you love us so much that you allow us to stumble and fall so that you can pick us back up and strengthen us, help us see the difference between the flesh and the spirit. So Lord, I just ask that you would move and you would work in our hearts and our lives this moment. In Jesus' name.